0: thank each and every one of you for being here this morning appreciate it very much please take note of the announcements in the bulletin mary martha meeting next week mary martha game day a week from next saturday read all of that and the opportunities to bring in food or the not food candy for the uh and treat In 1952, a young man who had grown up attending church, but for the previous two years, 1950, 1951, he'd started attending the Communist Party in Indianapolis. He informed his wife he was going to become a Methodist preacher and his goal was to infiltrate the church with his socialism, communist agenda. He thought that that would be a perfect place to launch that particular ideology. His thinking was the church was ready for socialism. Not long after becoming licensed ordained, he was given position as a youth pastor in a Methodist church, but while there he, he went to a Pentecostal church that was wrapped up in the latter rain revival movement of the early 1950s, where somebody prophesied over him that God wanted to use him in a great way, and so he embraced this latter rain movement. And he left the Methodist church and he began holding meetings like the faith healers of the 1950s. He proved to be a very charismatic speaker and he appeared to have miracles take place during his ministry. He got hooked up with William Branham. And if you know anything about, don't worry about looking it up, okay? But he was a very... Uh, A very popular, well-known faith-healing evangelist with a few shady things on the side. Um, This young man had this church going in Indianapolis in 1965. Things kind of went upside down, but he moved his church to San Francisco and established the People's Temple of California. He's accused of duping thousands of people by faking healing miracles. As he promoted his apostolic socialism, the accusations of abuse began to surface. When the IRS began to look into the finances of People's Temple, he moved his church to Guyana, taking with him about 900 of the 3,000 or so people who claimed to be a part of the people's church, to a compound that he had established there called Jonestown. Now, by this time, those of you that are older, remember, that's Jim Jones. At that point in time, he had come to the place where he claimed to be deity. He claimed to be a Messiah, literally, a Christ. Congressman Leo Ryan from California, if you read about that congressman, he went after everybody who was doing anything shady, and Jim Jones came to his attention, and he took a group of people uh, to Guyana because he heard that Jim Jones had taken and was holding people there against their will, which was true. On the day that Ryan and his crew were to leave Guyana to fly back to the United States, they were assassinated on the airstrip um, as they were trying to board that nine-passenger plane. Later that same day, 909 people drank the Kool-Aid. Jim Jones said that they had to drink if they were a good communist. Now they started out Pentecostal believers looking for miracles. Now they've come to the point, as a good communist, you need to drink this because when word gets back that Ryan's been killed, they didn't kill everybody. There was somebody that escaped. The United States military's gonna come and wipe you out anyway. So he along with nine hundred nine 908 other people, Drink? Well, he didn't drink the Kool-Aid, he had a bullet in his head, whether self-inflicted or whether he commanded one of his lieutenants to do it, but he committed suicide with these other people. three Over 300 of them were children. It is perhaps one of the most tragic stories that I could find about people being duped by false teaching being duped by a smooth talking man who claimed to be a preacher, who came into the ministry with an agenda to take people down the road that Marx had written about in his book. The story of Jim Jones is the story of a cult built to feed a man's ego. All in the name of being a church. Here's the thing there have been those kind of men ever since the church was birthed in the first century AD. They haven't taken it to that level in most cases. But the tragedy is, the tragedy is, there have been men who are false prophets who have right now they are deceiving millions of people believing that they are ready for eternity and they're absolutely not ready for eternity because they have not embraced Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And they do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We bring that up because as we come to 1 John, the whole reason he's writing this message is because he's upset about the fact that there's false teaching that has arisen within the church in Asia Minor. I mean, he doesn't even start with a greeting. He doesn't end with a greeting. He just gets into this message about the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I saw him. I touched him. I felt him. I walked with him. I heard him. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt. And he didn't put it in there, but it's inferred. Just go read the gospel that I wrote. That's I wrote it just so you know that he's... The, the Son of God. Because the it was the beginning of the heresy of Gnosticism that said, the Gnostics said, there's no way that God could become flesh. And so what happened is Mary and Joseph had a baby and they named him Jesus. And when he came of age and was baptized, God sent his spirit on him And it was on him to do these miracles and to teach these things until we get to the crucifixion because God can't die. And so that spirit left him. And so the person, Jesus, died and was put in the grave and the resurrection's all a hoax. That's the Gnostics' belief. And they're trying to get, and there was a a particular man in Ephesus who was heading up this new heresy. And John is coming against that. So he writes, and we've come down to verse eighteen, chapter two. Children, it's the last hour, and as you have heard, that antichrist is coming. So now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. It is the last hour. Was he saying we have sixty minutes to live and we're done? If you read the... Now, most of us, when we read it, believe that John wrote this toward the end of his life, which means by this time, the city of Jerusalem has been wiped out. The temple of Herod burned to the ground, everything gone, totally gone, and it has been gone ever since then, totally gone. There have been, by this time, thousands of people of the way, Christians who have been executed for their faith. Peter, well, all the other, of the eleven, all ten of them by this time have already been martyred for their faith. But there were thousands upon thousands of them martyred by the Roman Empire. So it could have been easy for somebody to say, well, we're down to the very last moments. What does he mean when he says it's the last hour? It appears to me and to many others who are more educated than I and way smarter than me that we can equate this word the last hour with the phrase the last days that we read throughout the scripture. For example, in in Acts chapter 2, verse 14, 15, and 16, 17, Peter standing with the eleven, this is the day of Pentecost, lifted up his voice and he addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk. The people who are speaking in languages they've never learned, glorifying God and the people hearing their own language from other nations. How do we get this? He said, these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, or nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was uttered to the prophet Joel, and in the last days it shall be. God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. The New Testament church understood the period of time that God calls the last days began with the coming of Jesus and his ascension back into heaven after the crucifixion. The writer of Hebrews said it this way in Hebrews chapter one, verse one. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He said, in these last days, when he was living, in the course of time, he said, over time, God has spoken to us. God dealt with men. If you're a Bible student, you can, in your mind, just run back, clear back to the beginning. Genesis, God made a covenant with Abraham or Adam and Eve. He said to Eve, your seed is going to crush the seed of this serpent. It was a covenant, it was a promise. That's going to happen. You go a few more chapters into the book of Genesis, think about chapter 12, and God says to Abram, leave the land of Ur and go to a land that I will show you, I will make of you a great nation, and through you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. God made a covenant with Abraham, And you read Galatians, and you and I are participants in the covenant that God made with Abraham. You will go down a few few more years, three or four more centuries, and now Moses comes on the scene. Go get Abraham's children out of Egypt, and I will give you the promised land. Give this land that I promised to him. And he makes the covenant with, with Moses and those people at that point in time. And, and then Moses dies and Joshua comes and God speaks to Joshua and he uses them to lead the children of Israel to conquer the most part of the, of the land of Canaan. They quit too early, but Joshua led them. And then we have the period of the judges where God raised up men and women to lead the people 20 years, 40 years at a time. Then they cried out for king and God gave them Saul, and Saul screwed it up, and then David came. And God made a covenant with David. There's always going to be somebody on the throne, forever, because the Messiah will come from your lineage. That's a paraphrase of a whole lot of scripture. Because Jesus Christ was born a son of David to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. Not only over Israel, but over all the nations of all the world. The scripture says he is on his vestige king of kings. The king of all the nations. God has spoken through all the times. But when we come to Jesus being born in Bethlehem. After David, there's a whole bunch of prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all those other guys. But when we come to the birth of Jesus, God speaks to us through his Son. God speaks through himself manifested in the flesh. When Jesus came to earth the first time, it was the beginning of the last days. The days in which salvation is made available to whosoever will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not going to be another Messiah come. There's not going to be another covenant made. The best covenant, the final covenant, has been made through Jesus Christ. He still uses people to declare that truth, to prophesy that truth. Prophecy in the truest sense is just Forth-telling, not necessarily foretelling, but forthtelling, the word of the Lord. Joel said that in the last days, God would do some incredible things. He would pour out his spirit upon people. And we see great things take place. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, understand this. Here's some other signs of the last days reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Now as we read those things, all of us, we are very cognizant of all of those things being in our culture. But it was even in their culture that day, Otherwise, why would he say avoid such people? When Jesus, in my opinion, ascended back into the heaven, Satan waged war like he'd never waged war before. We have the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And in the good news is when the enemy comes in like a flood the Lord Savior and up a standard against him. Yes. You, you, Jesus is the last revelation of the Father. He represents the final covenant that God is going to make. The next event that we are expecting is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that it could happen today. It could happen at any moment. This is the last hour. John, as he's looking at the culture, he said, folks, listen, it's the last hour, not just the last day. He saw an urgency about the time. He's saying it's not the time to be coasting. It's not the time to be saving energy. It's time to give it your all in your following Jesus Christ. He says, we know it's getting late because the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work in the world now. He says, yes, we know there's a great Antichrist coming, but listen, there are already Antichrists at work at this moment. Paul refers to the the man of perdition, the King James English. He takes note, but John says, there's already the spirit of Antichrist been turned loose. People trying to lead other people astray, especially young believers in Jesus Christ. In a few moments, I'll come back to this point, but I want to read the rest of chapter two. That's our goal to finish that this morning. Not in depth, but we will finish it. They went out from us, but they were not of us. He's speaking about those of the spirit of Antichrist. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not, they all are not of us. But you've been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Let me just throw in something right here. That's When he said, you don't have anyone that need to teach you, What he's referring to, what he's referring to is the fact that this group of Antichrist, the Gnostics, said, you need to let us teach you this new way of knowing God. And that's what he's coming against. Otherwise, if they didn't need any teacher, he wouldn't have written the book. He wouldn't have written the letter. But he's coming against, you don't need this person who says, you know what? You need to let me teach you what I've learned that you won't learn down there in that church. I've got something really special. That's what the whole thing was. Antichrist. John is the only one in the scripture to use the word antichrist. He uses it in in verse 18 twice, and then verse 22, and then he uses it again in chapter 4, verse 3, and then in 2 John, verse 7. Jesus did not use the word antichrist but he did say this in Matthew 24:24 24, 24, For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray if possible even the elect Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. I referred to this a moment ago in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4. Let no no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called god or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. That's the person everybody's been looking for for the last 2,000 years is that man who, the Antichrist. But remember what John said, many Antichrists have come. The word Antichrist can infer two different things. First, it can mean someone who replaces Christ. When I say replaces him, they claim to be him. They claim to take his position, or to take his position on earth. You see, when Paul said he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God, the list of men down through the centuries who've done that very thing, that I am God, I am the Messiah, is long. when a particular leader of a vast religious organization says, the word that I speak is infallible, he joins the group that's listed here as the one who takes a seat in the temple of God, proclaiming to be God. Antichrist can also mean someone who opposes And denies who Christ is. The Gnostics denied that Christ was the Son of God. They opposed him in that way. There are cults that call themselves Christian who do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the literal eternal son of god they make him a created being we'll read more about that in a moment in this second chapter first john uh, john makes several observations about how to identify those who are of the spirit of antichrist first of all the antichrist that john refers to in this setting were people that at one time appeared to be part of the church They appeared to be part of the church. They joined themselves together with the believers. As time went by, they did what Jim Jones did. They separated themselves to go do their own thing and say, come on down the street, we have a better deal. We have a new deal. Based upon their philosophies that were contrary to the gospel. You know, these could be some of the people Jesus referred to. He's talking about the parables of the, of the, of the seed being thrown out and does not take root. And the first sign of trouble, they, they go their own way and make up their own thing. And, or remember Matthew 13, he talked about the farmer who went out and sowed good seed, went to bed, and somebody came along and sowed tares, weeds. That looks just like the wheat until it becomes time for harvest time. And then it's very obvious John said, there's some tares among us. There's some weeds. They separated themselves out. They left the church. You know why? Darkness has no fellowship with light. Darkness has no fellowship with light. They had to go someplace else to keep the lights out. So they could keep propagating their deceptive theology, the lies. They became so uncomfortable they couldn't hang out there anymore. So they all go to the outside and lure people to come down the street. In verse 22, we see the bottom line of their new revelations. They deny that Jesus is the Christ. They denied that he was the anointed one, the Messiah. They denied that Jesus was the Son of God. Now I would explain to you, they believed that he was a man, the Spirit came on him, then left him, and he's in the grave someplace today in Jerusalem. They taught the way to God is through knowledge, what you know, the knowledge they had in particular. They thought your body's hopelessly evil, cannot be redeemed, so go ahead and do whatever you want in your body. As long as you have the right knowledge, you're going to be all right for eternity. John spells it out pretty plain for us. Anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ is a liar. That's what he said. In case you're offended that I said it, I'm reading the Bible. Anyone who denies that Jesus is the Son of God is Antichrist. Anyone that teaches you there's a way to get to heaven without Jesus is Antichrist
1: and they are lost.
0: John stood with Peter way back in the first couple months, weeks after Pentecost. They'd been to the Gate Beautiful, remember? And Peter said to the crippled man, we don't have a silver and gold, look on us. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. They got hauled into the Sanhedrin for preaching Jesus. And Peter says in, in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. No other name. In the world today, there are many religions that are anti-Christ. They look good from the outside. They call for people to be moral people, upright people, to care about one another, to be good neighbors, to pay your bills on time, to be religious. However, they are anti-Christ and anti-God because they teach that there's another way to be saved other than embracing the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection from the grave teach you you can be saved by paying penance or having your sins absolved by some special man. Some teach that Jesus was merely one of several of God's sons. He didn't really die. didn't raise from the dead. Some of them are subtle and some not so subtle in the way that they deny Christ. John says in verse 23 that no one who denies the Son has the Father. No one who denies the Son has the Father, no matter what you call yourself. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have the Father. That means there's multitudes of people who've been damned for eternity because their eyes and their hearts are darkened and blind by the lies of somebody And a couple of the major cults in the United States were started by people who started out in the church, the true church, and they got a new revelation. There are people today who want us to believe that Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha, any one of the 4,000 Hindu gods all lead to the same God. This is not what the Bible teaches. I am the way the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. To the one who believes in Jesus alone as their source of salvation, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. I could spend an hour easy on this great promise, but I just want to hit the highlights of it real quickly. Just some of the perks that are ours because we have the Son and the Father. Because of Jesus, we now have a clear and exact image of the Father. We have a clear and an exact image of the Father. John fourteen nine says this, Jesus answered, he said, um, you're, you know where I'm going, and no, we don't know where you're going. Show us the Father. Philip says, show us the Father. And he answered, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. I've been here three years and you don't get it. Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. Number two, we have an understanding of his great love. Amazing love. How can it be?
1: How can it be?
0: 1 John 4, 10, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Uh Uh-oh, somebody hit verse 11 instead of 10, but that's a good one. Dear friends, since God loved us, we ought to lust one another. But verse 10, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins had a pen I'd write a note to go fix that. number three, access, access to the Father. We have access to the Father. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. You remember the Old Testament? the tabernacle? Where did God dwell? behind the curtain. Who could go in? The The high priest. After he purified himself multiple times, multiple sacrifices. But when Jesus died and the veil was torn in two, I have direct access to my Father. There's another verse, hit the next slide. Through him we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Access by faith into this grace. Next slide, Jonathan, Hebrews 4.16 said, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I do not have to live in fear of the wrath of God because Jesus died in my place, and by grace I can come into the very presence of the most holy and the living God who created everything, me included. I have access to the Father. Number four, we've been given the right to be called his children, and to call him Father. We have been given the right to be called his children and call him Father. John chapter 1 verse 12 said this, Yet to all who received him, to to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children of God. Hit the next slide, Jonathan. Romans eight fifteen said, You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, O oh, most God who created the heavens and the earth. He did do that. O oh, most holy God who judges... Everyone and everything, he did do that. He does do that. But that's not the way that Jesus taught us to approach the Father. When you pray, say this. Our Father, Abba Father, Daddy God, Daddy God, I come to you. Last for the notes, not the last thing we have, but an everlasting home with the Father. Because of Jesus Christ, we have an everlasting home with the Father. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I'd have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. What an awesome hope we have. To be absent from this body is to be home. To be home. I'm looking forward to going home. There's a lot more of us over there than are here. Somebody asked me how the church was going a few months, or a couple of weeks ago at a pastor's conference and I said I'd had too many funerals. <laughs> yeah. Too many people get out of here before I did.
1: Yeah.
0: John is writing here. And he says, listen, before I get there, if you don't have Jesus, you have none of these things I've just talked about. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have any of these things. You have none of them. He's writing the church about the spirit of Antichrist at work in the age, and, and he, he wants the church to know you're equipped. You are equipped to come against this deception. You're equipped to not be sucked into heresy. And he gives he points out two weapons right here in this passage. And as we've been looking at this, he has a way of coming back as he continues to write and enlarging on things as he goes. But right here He said in verse 20, verse chapter 2, the first weapon here, you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Verse 27, by the anointing that you receive from him, but the anointing you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as he's taught you, abide in him. Weapon number one, we have the anointing. We have the anointing. Here's another thing I could preach for a long time on, going through the scriptures and looking at the anointing. You remember back in, in 1 Samuel chapter 10, when the people cried out for a king, and God said to Samuel, here's your man, and this Saul, and that he anointed him with the oil to become the king of Israel. And he told him, after he poured that oil, you're going to go here, you're going to do this, this is going to happen. You get, and when you get to where the prophets are, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, is going to come upon you and it's going to change you. You are going to be changed by the power of God coming upon you and that's just what happened. Saul went and began to prophesy with the prophets. We go to the moment in time when Saul is rejected and God tells Samuel, I want you to go to Bethlehem and I want you to anoint the next king, a man after my own heart. Jesse brings all of his sons and none of the first seven and you have another one. Yes, David is in the field, they bring in the shepherd. And in First Samuel sixteen thirteen, we read, so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, poured the oil over his head. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. The oil of the Lord, the anointing oil in the Old Testament, is a picture of the Holy Spirit being poured out on people to empower them to do the work that God created for them to do. He said to the church members, You are have an anointing. You have received the oil of the Holy Spirit poured over you. Not only has been poured over you, but he is in you. Jesus said, it is expedient for you that I go away. I will send another comforter, and he will not just be with you, but he will be in you. He told them, go wait in Jerusalem, because when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be endued with power. Dunamis. There will be power for you to be witnesses, for you to be. For when the Holy Spirit comes on, you'll be changed. You'll be a new person. If any man is in Christ Jesus, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things become new. Jesus said in John 16, when he comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will guide you into all truth. Verse 14 said, he will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. John says, because the Holy Spirit is in you, He will help you to know what's true and what's false. As you live out your life under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he will guard your heart and your mind from being deceived by the spirit of Antichrist. That anointing is always with you, always in you. We sing great songs. Holy Spirit, fall. We love to sing those. You all pray, anoint the preachers. So I preach a short message instead of a long one. Your prayers haven't been answered yet. We pray, Lord, anoint the ears of the listener to hear the word. But it might be more correct to pray. Lord, help us to submit to the anointing that is already within us. Let us surrender to that. Lord, help us to hear under the influence of that anointing. Help us to speak under the influence of that anointing. Help us to act under the influence of that anointing. And the UI on your page is under the influence. Under the influence. The anointing. You have an unctioning. It's the way the King James said. You have an unctioning. You have this anointing. You have the presence of the Holy Spirit within you. Let it flow. Jesus said it would be like a river of living water flowing from your innermost being.
1: We need to let it flow. We need to submit to it. Have your way. Have your way. Holy Spirit. Have your way. Songwriter wrote that, Have your way, have your way. Holy Spirit, fill our hearts and have your way. As we wait, as we pray, Holy Spirit, fill our hearts and have your way. Sing it, would you? Have your way, have your way, Holy Spirit, fill our hearts and have your way. As we wait, as we pray, Holy Spirit, fill hearts and have your way.
0: Weapon number two. The word. The word. Verse 24. That what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father, I believe John is speaking of the apostles' teachings that they took from Jesus Himself. Read John fifteen and lay it right against these verses right here. Teaching that Jesus gave to us as fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, the apostle teaching that we now have is the New Testament, but John said, abide in this word and let this word abide in you. I cannot overemphasize the importance of knowing the word, living the word, staying in the word. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but his word is what? Forever. His word is forever. Forever. Everything else will be consumed. But his word is forever. The psalmist tells us that the person who abides in the word will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. You'll have deep roots or strong foundation. You'll have deep roots or strong foundation. Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter 7. He said, if you build your house upon the rock, when the storms come, when the hurricanes come, your house will stand. And as he goes, the psalmist said, whatever you do, if you abide in the word, Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, sit and see His delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law, he meditates day and night, and whatsoever he does prospers. It brings success. To live in the word and allow the word to live in you will bring success to your life. Whatever he does prospers, and he'll bring forth fruit and season, and the leaf will not wither. Paul said, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. The Word of God builds faith. Faith is not a blind leap into the darkness. Faith is standing upon the promises of God. It's standing on the promises of God. And the more I know the Word, the more I know God. The more convinced I am that God will do what he says. It will keep you in fellowship with the Son and with the Father. It will keep you in fellowship with the Son and with the Father. If what you live from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, the Father and I will come and we will make a permanent dwelling in you. The word abide. John uses the word abide 24 times in his epistles. It's a word that we heard Jesus speak on the night before the crucifixion as he was giving instructions to the disciples on the vine and you are the branches. Abide in me. Abide in me. Without me, you can do nothing. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you will, and it shall be done. Hold fast. He said, Abide in me, and your life will be fruitful. Hold fast to the word of truth. The whole word. The whole counsel. Let me read that again. Say it again. The whole word. The whole counsel cults have been derived from scripture but they only take the ones they want rightly divide the word of truth when you rightly divide the word of truth we walk in liberty we walk in power we walk in peace we walk in joy even in the midst of circumstances that are beyond our control because we know the one who has it all under control 1 John 2.28 And now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. We may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. And I remember growing up hearing preachers preach what would you do if you were in a movie theater when Jesus comes again? We're in the bowling alley. John says there's a place of assurance in our relationship with God that when he comes, we'll be looking for him. We'll be happy to see him. The scriptures also said there's going to be people who are going to call for the mountains to cover them, the rocks to cover them, because they're going to be ashamed to stand in the presence of the one who gave himself for them and they ignored him. They rejected him. They had nothing to do with him. Abide in him. Abide in him. Yeah. K-O, K-O. I tried out for the basketball team in college, the first tryout wasn't in the gym. The first tryout had nothing to do with whether you could bounce a ball or shoot a basketball. It had to do with whether or not you could run the two miles on the, around the track under a certain amount of time. They were kind enough. The coaches were kind enough to forewarn anybody who was thinking about signing up for the basketball team. You need to be in shape to run these two miles. They didn't want to spend time getting us in shape after practice started, and. Uh, so for weeks leading up to the first tryout, every day I was out on that track running, pressing, trying to... For some reason, they gave short guys a faster time than the taller guys. I'd never figured that out. Their legs were twice as long as mine. <laughs> but um, if I'd have been three inches taller, they would have given me a whole extra minute to make the team. Just, just didn't. But anyway, I was determined to make the team. But running two miles is not my thing at one time, especially when they tell you you have to do it in this time. Um, and there comes a point, KO, KO. KO, KO. You're not supposed to put that up till I put it there. <laughs> I talked to you earlier about that. (laughs) Keep on keeping on. Abide in me. Keep on keeping on. When you're running, when I was running the two miles, I mean the first mile, I'd gotten enough shape the first mile. Not too bad. But there comes a point about the sixth lap of the eight laps that you're shoes began to feel like they're 10 or 15 pounds. And to make matters worse, the guy right out in front of me was a state champion two-miler at his high school the year before in Colorado. And he's breezing through that, and in fact, he's he's lapped a couple of guys, and I'm about to lap one or two of them. But, I mean, he's... And I'm... (laughs) But I need to make the team. Keep on keeping on keep on keeping on whatever you're going through keep on keeping on because one day Jesus is going to come and redeem us and if I've kept on keeping on I'm going to stand there unashamed I'm going to stand there with confidence because by the power of the anointing of the Holy Spirit I did not give up and when I did fall down I got up and I kept going again This is the last hour, verse 18 says. I hope that somehow we are moved by the urgency of the hour in which we live. This is the last hour. It's getting close to the end of the game of life. One day sooner than we think, Jesus is going to appear from the portals of heaven. Every eye will see him. Every tongue will confess. John says, live out, keep on keeping on so you're not embarrassed. Live out your life so you'll be able to stand with confidence, knowing you by his will and by his power, you're abiding in him. No doubt in the back of his mind as he's writing these words, he remembers Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who's in heaven on that day many will say to me Lord Lord did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many my works in your name I will declare to them I never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness in Matthew 25 Jesus tells a couple parables and one of them is about ten bridesmaids ten virgins five wise and five foolish their job is to escort the bride to the bridegroom's new home that he has prepared for her. But they don't know when he's coming because he doesn't come until he's finished the accommodations for his bride. Then he sends a messenger and they all get ready and, and they do this. In this particular story, he comes at midnight. They need light. There's no street lights. Five of them, they didn't bring enough oil. Five of the other ones, they have a flask of oil. Please help us share. No, we can't share. There won't be enough for us. So you go to the vendors and go buy some oil. They go to the vendors and it's Jesus' parable. Then they come to the home where the wedding is being completed. They beat on the door. And the bridegroom says, I don't know you. I don't know you. Depart. Jesus concludes that story by saying, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Watch therefore, you don't know the day nor the hour. What day? What hour? The day when Jesus returns to this earth for the final time, the day that will mark the end of time, or Or, the day when the Holy Spirit touches you once on the heart, once on the lungs, for the last time, and you breathe your last breath. That can happen at any moment to any one of us. No matter how young you may be, or how old you may be. We all have an appointment. You have an appointment on the list. I know many people today who think they have things figured out in terms of the timing, the antichrist, the mark of the beast, all of that. We'll have these period of time to get our act together, and, and somehow they're able to predict the end. Let me encourage you don't get sucked into being obsessed by looking for the Antichrist and all the beast. Rather, follow the example of the one who saw the revelation and wrote it down. He said, it's the last hour. Live like it. It's urgent. Get ready to meet your maker. Christians, it's the last hour. The fields are white unto harvest. Pray the Lord sends laborers into the harvest. We must work while it's still day," Jesus said. Matthew 24, hear the words of Jesus about that day. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angel of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men be in the field, one be taken, one left. Two women be grinding at the meal, one be taken, one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect are you ready are you ready to stand before the Lord if he called you home today if he called you home today you stood before God and God says why should I let you into this place what's your answer going to be the only answer that will get you in as I've embraced Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I ask him to cleanse me by the power of his blood and by his grace I've endeavored to follow him to this very place. I stand here today before you Father because of your amazing grace that you made real to me. Thank you. It all begins with a prayer, a prayer of repentance. Father, in heaven I believe that Jesus Christ is your son that he came to earth in the flesh that he died on the cross for my sins and you raised him from the grave because he had no sin in himself and I ask you to forgive me of my sin and here's the important part and to be the Lord of my life I got to do more than just confess I'm a sinner. I need to make him my Lord. My Lord.
1: Would you stand as we sing the prayer? And then we will pray.